welcome back to the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And I'm going to skip the intro again because it's boring and we have a guest and I'd rather get into that. (laughs) If that's okay, Steve. Sorry, behind the scenes. Magic. Um, we have Steve Desmond with us. Um, we have been getting so many questions about adapting IP. How do you find IP? And how, how do you even like go about looking for anything that you could possibly attach yourself to? Um, and then what do you do after that? And so Steve Desmond is always my go-to person. He's helped me so much with these kinds of questions for my own career. I thought, might as well have him on. But then as I was thinking about it, Steve, you're like such a you're such an expert on so many other topics that we'll probably have you on for something <laughs> else. <laughs> like I wanna I wanna talk so much about your the Zen the Zen writing life you've just discovered in this in this new year. Um, but that will be for another time. <laughs> I, I heard about your Zen writing life, Steve. Tasha told me because I tend to stress out about things and she was like, You need to listen to Steve Desmond. I didn't realize I had a Zen writing life, so I'm gonna. I'm excited to see what this is all about too. <laughs> Next time, <laughs> I, I do have. I, I actually have a, a a side story about both you, Tasha, and Steve Desmond. I'm gonna just tell Uh-oh. you guys. I'm gonna spring this on you. This is what all we like right. to do on the podcast. Okay. So I was in a goal buddy group with Tasha. It was myself, Dave Levinson, and Tasha. And then Tasha like started to fade away from the goal buddies, and we we're like, wow. Where the fuck did Tasha go? And then one day, she's like, casually like, my goal buddy, Steve Desmond. And I'm like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Dave and I were like, what are you with? She's like, oh, I've been in a group with Steve this entire time. Yeah, like, I'm Tasha's goal mistress, basically. So, <laughs> we so sorry, Josh, I'm the other guy. That was what I was. I was like, who is this Steve Desmond? That was it. And then, then I met you, and then I understood why she left us. <laughs> but. Anyway, on that note, Steve, do you want to introduce yourself and just tell <laughs> us who you are, what you're kind of working on? And, and also the, the question we always ask everyone in the first bit is how the hell did you become a working screenwriter? Such a bizarre job. Sure. And thanks for having me. And Josh, thanks for um, forgiving me after all that turmoil over the years. You did nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. This is yeah, this is, this is more on Tasha. Um, yeah, my name is Steve Desmond. Uh, I Grew up in Chicago, went to USC, and I'm lucky enough to do what Josh and Tasha do and work as a screenwriter. In terms of how I became one, my I have a writing partner. His name's Michael Sherman. And after film school, we just pounded the pavement and wrote and wrote for many, many years. And you know, you hear those stories of someone writes and sells their first script or their second script, and that didn't happen to us. Our first script was pretty bad, and our second <laughs> script wasn't much better. In our case, it was our ninth script, I think, which was the first one we made any money on, and our 17th script when we were able to quit our day jobs and do this full time and just work, you know, it was just a trial and tribulation and just working harder, harder and harder over the years until we eventually got lucky. And now this, we just get paid to make up shit, which is (laughs) such a cool job that we all have. Did you work in the industry at all as you were coming up or did you take outside jobs? How, how did that look when you were writing script one through 17? <laughs> yes, I always worked in the industry. I think either approach could work, but I always wanted to have a day job in film and TV. So I worked as an assistant 
to, to a manager, to a TV director, to a reality TV producer. I was an assistant editor. I was an editor in like reality television and kind of low grade commercials. Um, and then probably the best day job I had was being a commercial treatment writer where I would mm. write commercial treatments for various production companies. And what I loved about that is it was uh, deadline based rather than hours based. So they didn't care what time of day you were writing the commercial treatment as long as they got it when they needed it and you were paid per treatment. And I found that was an excellent supplemental income source to feed my screenwriting and directing aspirations for several years until I was able to just do what I wanted. Did your work in the industry benefit your writing career? I mean, I know you just said that story about like with, with Deadline, but I mean, in terms of connections, did you meet a manager or agent by working through the industry? Yes. Well, not through the jobs directly, but I always put a big emphasis in my life on building as many relationships as possible. So even when I was an assistant, I was going out for you know drinks, coffees, lunches, that sort of thing, really trying to build my social calendar as if I was an aspiring, an exe aspiring executive or an aspiring agent. And those relationships over the years, the, for the people that stayed in the industry, have really carried over. Um, you know, my men my writing mentor always says, you know, I'm, I'm in the business of making movies in the business of building relationships. And I think the word networking gets tossed around a lot. It kind of has this sleazy like, oh, here's my business card. I work in Hollywood vibe, which is but if you look at it as generally trying to meet new people and trying to make new friendships, this is all like one big high school. And I think a big part of it is building your community. And the benefit I got from those day jobs is I was always around other people that were aspiring to do more than they were currently employed in. Mm. And that has been hugely beneficial in terms of not just like stuff like getting representation, but just, um, having people to send your script to and kind of becoming your own agent until you are lucky enough to get someone to represent you. I have a segue question because we get this a lot as well. Um, you write with a writing partner. Can you talk about how you met Michael and how that relationship started? Yeah, Michael and I met as undergrads at USC film school and he was someone who, you know, I, I was in the production program, so I was constantly writing and directing short films. And I would always send uh, my short film scripts out to a couple friends before filming them just to get feedback. And Michael gave by far the best feedback out of everyone I was sending it to, to the point that he was practically you know, rewriting the scripts with me. So eventually we're like, well, let's just let's do this together. And we co-wrote what's called a 480 a thesis film at USC. Anyone who went there will, will know what that means. We co-wrote that, that I directed and just had a wonderful experience. And what cemented us working together, and this is such a film school thing, a student film thing, there was the first day of shooting, we lost our location for day two. And I had to stay up late and, to, and, and basically redesigned the entire shot plan. And Michael was the only crew member who stayed up all those hours to Aww. make to sure like I had the help I needed and like the support oh. and that we were working together and he just went through the trenches. And I think it's important with writing partners to not work with someone who's identical to you, to not work with someone who's just a, like, like a match for your personality. You really want to think of it more as like a Venn diagram where they are compensating where you are weak and vice versa. Michael and I have very different personalities. 
pretty different interests outside of film and television, but we both bring very different things to the table when it comes to creating stories. And I think that has really been instrumental to keeping us working together for so many years. That's beautiful. That's super good advice because I can, I can just see ten, the tendency to try and find someone who's just like you because you think, well, if we're very similar, then we'll want to write the same things and we won't get mad at each other. But yes, absolutely. That's the human instinct, right? You want to work, we're friends with people that are like us, but also I would think, if you step back and think about it, probably some of your closest friends are quite a bit different than you, and yet it just works. And I think writing partnerships are the same. Perfect. No follow-up question. <laughs> well, so you guys have a new movie coming out. We do. Yes. Directed by M. Night Shyamalan, Knock at the Cabin Door. Uh, drop the door. Knock at the cabin. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I was, I, was, I was sweating as I was starting to say that. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, shit. So first of all, congratulations. That's incredible. Thank you. And, Thank you. And, and this will kind of like put us into the adaptation talk, I feel like. like yeah. Can you, can you speak to, well, wait a minute, Tasha, where to begin? Where to begin with all this? I, I guess I've wanna... already started. Let's, let's just go. Can, okay. can, you, can you talk about, because Knock at the Cabin is based on IP. So yes. let's, let's just jump into that as an example of how you approach IP and how that kind of came about. Knock at the Cabin was based on this really awesome novel called The Cabin at the End of the World, written by Paul Tremblay. And we got sent the book before it was even published. And Film Nation, which is this really amazing film finance company uh, and production company, they did like Promise Young Woman and King's Speech and Imitation Game and so many others. We had a chance to pitch our take on it to Film Nation and gave our take for what we thought the book would be. And at the time, we had made some inroads as screenwriters. We had set up one other thriller spec, but this was a big deal for us. You know, this was this was a, a, a bigger company, super reputable, and they really took a chance on us. They liked our take and they hired us to adapt this still unpublished novel. And in the writing process, the novel comes out, does exceptionally well, wins the Stoker Award, which is like the highest award in horror. Mm. And we finish the script and it gets on, uh, our adaptation gets on the blacklist. This was 2019. Wow. And they start looking, Film Nation starts looking for co-financing. So they're sending it to various co-financing co film companies. And the one that was most excited was Blinding Edge, which is M. Night Shyamalan's company. And it was initially sent to them for co-financing and for him to produce it. But when he read it, he wanted to direct it. And he came aboard to direct. And what happened then is what we thought was this indie horror film that would be made for, I don't know, $5 million or something suddenly became an M. Night Shyamalan Universal Studios international theatrical release so like the Damn. status yeah the status of this film and the scope of it just magnified significantly and you know i i never ever would have imagined when writing this script that you would see one that it would get like such a big theatrical as it is but also that you would see like trailers during the world cup and sunday night sunday night football and all, yeah. all this stuff and it's just been like yeah. a surreal experience um but yeah it comes out in theaters on february 3rd in terms of adaptations in that sense it was us being sent um so, uh, being sent the material i did not find that book myself but it was about coming up with our take and and pitching what we thought the movie could be and 
we were big fans of the book. So just tried to keep as much of the book that would work in a movie and really try to keep the spirit of the novel and find a way that it would work as, as a film. But what was cool about it for anyone who's read the book, it's so cinematic when you read it. I remember Michael and I saying to each other when we read the book, this will absolutely be a movie. Mm. We were that confident. Whether we write it or not, this will absolutely be a movie. And I've never felt for an original idea or an adaptation more confident in a movie's chances of existence as wow. when I read that book. Wow. How do you find certain material that you want to adapt? Is there like a resource that you go to or is it just like you go to the bookstore and you're kind of looking through this thriller section? Like, Because I, 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 we've talked to people who try to find things to adapt and they're like, where do I look? Reddit? Websites? Like, do you have like a go-to area? You don't have to disclose it, but if there is a uh, path. The go-to area is the interwebs, <laughs> which is go. not helpful. But, but here's a mindset that could be helpful for people. If you work as a development executive at a company, you are looking for IP across all mediums. But beyond that, you are looking for IP for all kinds of different directors, all kinds of different writers, all kinds of different actors. It's just like wide spectrum to be looking for. But you as a writer or as a director, you are a development executive for a company of one, or if you're in a partnership, a company of two. And by that, I mean, you know your taste. You kind of know exactly what you're looking for. You know exact. You know what kind of stories you want to tell, what kind of movies you want to write or make. So I find that, yes, searching for IP, like, in, in on earth feels extremely daunting but yeah. to give you an example a book that i found and we got the rights to and adapted and, and sold um called the saturday night ghost club i was looking for a ghost story because i just don't tend to come up with original ideas for ghost movies that, are, that i think are, are very good so i was looking for a ghost movie i was looking for something that i could direct which means it had to be made for had to be able to be made for under $10 million. And the type of ghost movies I love have like a really emotional element to it, something like The Sixth Sense, where there's like kind of an emotional, tragic element to it too. I didn't want it to be a haunted house movie. I wanted it to be more character-based. And suddenly you keep adding all of these things on and you're filtering it smaller and smaller. So now you're looking for something pretty specific, right? So a ghost story that's under $10 million that you could direct yourself that reminds you of the sixth sense that doesn't have a haunted house element. Well, you're not looking for comedies. You're not looking for period. You're not looking for action adventures. You're looking for one very specific thing. And you read in that little subcategory. And, and by the way, Chances are you might not still find something, but the cool thing is when it comes to reading material, again, you only, it, it has to impress you and only you. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times with IP, like not because I don't like it, but because, well, sometimes because I don't like it, but it, just because it's not what I want to do, you could stop reading after 20 or 30 pages. You don't have to finish these books or finish these comics. Like you will know pretty quick, but all the IP that I've gotten the rights to I was immensely hooked from the very beginning. Wow. And I say that in that if you're a quarter of the way through and you're still not feeling it, just stop. doesn't mean it's not good, by the way. It doesn't mean someone else won't go for it, but move on to the next thing. Because there is a volume business to it, too, of like, you. the first thing you read is probably not going to strike lightning for you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but the real mindset is be your own development executive. Look only for what you want. Um, and I think that will help organically shift you to where where you're looking and what kind of stories you're looking for. Um, it doesn't just have to be books. Like we, we've done short story, video game, whatever it is. In terms of the bookstore example, I have this fantasy of walking into like a mom and pop bookstore and picking some random book off the shelf and being like, this is it. And like the <laughs> gates of heavens open. It has never happened ever, ever, oh. ever, ever. Um, Damn I, I hope it happens for you though. Um, but it has, never, it has never happened for me. Um, I have a big question. Well, it feels big to me because so I like my biggest thing that comes up when I have IP that I'm really excited about that I want to go after is this terror that I actually need a huge, I need a take or maybe I need a script or maybe like, I don't know, but I feel like I need to do so much work before I even approach my agent to ask about the author. Like I'm not even, I'm not even broaching the topic with anyone outside of my own self because I'm afraid that there's so much work I have to do. So question to you, I guess is, is when, at what point do you feel like it's time to go try to get that IP? And what does that process look like? Do you do work after you get the IP and only then do you do a lot of work first? So you can convince the author to choose you. I guess just talk about that part of it. Yes. So my goal is to relieve yourself of that terror. Oh. And I also don't think you necessarily need the step of talking to your agent about it either. Yes. So, <laughs> and by the way, I love, I, Michael and I love our agents and they do play a big role in this, but, but try this on. I, to answer your question, you should go after IP that you love the moment you finish reading it. Immediately, because you can't, if you want to do this, you can't think like a screenwriter or even like a director. You have to think like a producer. And if a producer reads a short story or a comic or plays a video game or reads a book, whatever it is, and they think, oh, this could be a movie, they're going to look into the rights immediately, immediately, or they should, right? Allow FOMO to set in. It could be good. It could be helpful in this case. If you don't get the rights now, someone else could. You know, there, there have been cases where it's been competitive on our end. Um, so if you finish it, what I do, if I finish something and I go, this is awesome. Now, provided my, I, I may, my, in our case, Michael will read it too. But if we both read it and we agree that it's awesome, I'll do a, you know, a five minute Google search, right? I will Google like book title, film rights, TV rights. Just make sure you, usually if the rights are not, I shouldn't say usually, sometimes if the rights are taken, you'll just solve that for yourself right there. Actually, I usually do right searches before I even start reading something because I don't Mm want to fall in love with something and spend a few potentially several hours or days or weeks reading it and only to find out that like, yeah, James Wan already has the rights, dude. What are you doing? Um, It's going into production next month. Um, But if you love it, you do not need a take initially. Um, You just have to be convinced that it could be a movie or a TV show. And that's really more of a feeling and an instinct thing. And then what I would suggest someone do is look up the author. I'm just going to use a book short story example because that's mostly what we've done. But look up the author. Try to find their direct contact info. Most, A lot of authors will have a website with, and unless they're like enormous authors, there's a good chance they will have a, an email address or a way to directly me- email them through their website. And then write them a passion letter, a fanboy, fangirl letter, and communicate with them 
writer to writer and focus in this letter, and it's this only works if it comes from a real genuine place, how much you truly love the material. So like you two have done plenty of meetings like I have, and you could tell that any, any writer or director could tell the difference in like a general meeting when someone's like, hey, nice to meet you, loved your writing, so what are you working on next? <laughs> like, it's very impersonal, right? Mm -hmm. Who cares? But there are those other meetings where someone gushes about your work in a way that is honest and heartfelt, and it makes you feel great. And that is the kind of feeling you want to conjure in this email. You want to tell them exactly why you love their work. Don't bring up an option. Don't bring up a shopping agreement. Just end the email saying, I'm something along the lines of, would you ever be interested in, better than that, I would love to talk to you about the possibility of a film app adaptation. Would you be open to having a conversation? Mm -hmm. Just something simple, just open the door to it. Um, in the email, you should also talk about yourself, what you've worked on, what you wanna work on, just like a paragraph um, on yourself. This, this, doesn't, this, this whole email should be just a few paragraphs. Now, in most cases, the author mm -hmm. will, it, if they are interested, they will pass you on to your agent, to their agent. And at that point, you loop in your reps. Okay, now at this point, it becomes a negotiation. And that's when your agent or your manager or your attorney or some combination thereof, um, that's when they become really helpful. Now, if you cannot find the author's contact info, which happened to us on the most recent one we did, then leaning on your reps from the beginning is really useful because in our case, one of the agents where we're represented happened to know the author's agent. So mm -hmm. the communication began that way and we passed along a letter via the agents. I prefer writer to writer communication if you can do it, but if not, loop your agents in. Um, but if you take nothing else away from this is like, unless IP is prohibitively expensive, there is no reason that a screenwriter or director cannot get the rights to IP themselves. You don't need somebody else to do it for you. I love hearing that. I, it's I Josh's like, favorite. It favorite is, thing. you know, it's, I, I, as I've talked about on the podcast before, and as Tasha knows, the middleman always like having an agent or a manager, which I love my agent and manager, but these like quote unquote gatekeepers always kind of irk me because it feels like we're the writers. We want to do something. I should be able to contact this writer and express how much I love something. And, and rather than kind of being blocked by, you know, reps or have people kind of chat in your mind or in your ear and say something is a bad idea or whatever the case. I, I think so. And also like, uh, again, we're lucky. We, we are reps at um, APA and Entertainment 360 are all wonderful and they're supportive. You know, I mean, Adam Perry is our point agent and has always been very supportive of us being proactive to get IP. And like, once your reps are kind of like on the page with you, like this is something you want to do, you'll find ways that they can be extremely helpful. But mm. it's important that I think that the the client takes the initial step. Um, I, I generally find with agents and managers that they tend to be pretty excited when clients are proactive. You know, it's like, oh, look at this awesome short story I found. The rights are available. The author's interested. Could you help me negotiate a shopping agreement? Great. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're bringing something to them that that seems really cool and that, that you found. So, you know, I would just say to 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 go for it. Let me ask you real quickly. Have you ever gotten the rights being unwrapped? 
Yes, I, I say that um, with a little bit of a hesitation. And I did, I did when in, in film school, it was the first time I got the rights to a short story. There oh, okay. is this author named Nelson DeMille, who's a very renowned New York Times bestselling author. And for my student thesis film at USC, I got the rights to one of his oldest short stories to adapt. What I didn't realize where I was naive at the time is getting like a student film right was was like a non-exclusive non-commercial so it was like it was frankly pretty easy to get but it's not really getting the rights to something okay. when, when you really get the rights you want to have an exclusive to it you want to be able to make money from it you want to be able to to, to sell it com uh, um, completely so yes i did but kind of not really um but here's the thing you can do it i do think you should at least have someone who can negotiate and supervise a shopping agreement for you they're pretty simple mm -hmm. but it's still smart to have someone in your corner doing it what what i would encourage though is i think all of us need to know what lane maybe lane's the wrong word what rung in the ladder we're currently at and and by that i mean if you're an unrepped not yet working writer it's just unrealistic to think that you're going to get the rights to a new york times bestseller you're just not you're not going to be able to afford it. And the author is just not going to trust you unless it's a personal relationship. And that's okay. I find that in terms of getting your own IP, you've got to be looking where other people aren't looking. You've got to find things that are falling through the, have fallen through the cracks or maybe that are a number of years old. And if you and this material could still be very strong and very powerful as much so as, as those, as a New York times bestseller, but you don't want to exceed your own reach too much. So if you are unwrapped and you're not a working writer yet, I would be looking at like older short stories or, or older books or, you know, older video games from not from the, from the, you know, not the huge companies. And, and as you climb those rungs, your reach expands and you could go after bigger, you know, pieces of material. But even now, like at, at, at one point we were doing um, an adaptation of The Sims for a studio. Now I never could have gotten the rights to The Sims. That's a huge video game. So there, there are like there are some IP that only studios and financiers could get the rights to, and that's totally fine. So you've got to look where they're not looking. Um, speaking to those who maybe don't have a lot of credits to their name or credits enough to impress an author. How do you feel like that email, that passion email goes to the author? If you can't really list off, here's proof that I've done it before and can do it again. How does that usually look then? I think you have to find something. Maybe you graduated from a, uh, a university they would have heard of, right? Maybe you are working with a company that you know like, like for instance we used to write on spec for production companies and we were working with them that is true we were not professional working you know, we were not not sold full-time screenwriters but we were working with this company and that company anything i would say look at your own bio and see what is the truthful but also most impressive way of, of stating your bio to someone else as long as it's honest but you I, I think a lot of writers tend to not give themselves enough credit for what they've worked on and who they've worked with mm -hmm. and the the other reality of this is maybe the person just isn't 
quite at the level where they're ready to get IP to to certain material. And that's okay. Like build up your like we all started by writing original material and finding some success with original material. So I think like don't make looking for IP your full-time job. You want to be a writer or a director, right? So like continue to write the original material. And if you feel your bio has I I, I find that just about everyone will have a bio that has something very interesting and impressive to say. But again, it's just about going after stuff that feels attainable. If it's a 50 year old short story, is the author going to care? And no one's ever heard of it. Is the author going to care that much? Or are they just going to take a shot on some young, hungry screenwriter? I think there's a good chance they'll take a shot. Mm -hmm. Like, can I ask, have you always had this, uh, like, producer mind or executive mind or, or the drive to find material? Or was this something that you developed? Like you saw something at USC, you're like, okay, I have to do this my, on my own. I have to start getting material and being active and, and connecting with everyone. Yeah. There, there, it's always been, it was, <laughs> it was gained the rights to that Nelson, the Mill short story at USC, which deluded me into thinking it was easy, which it's <laughs> actually not. But at the time I was like, Psh, that was easy. Not realizing Oh yeah, it was easy because you got a non-exclusive, non-commercial uh, right to a short story. But I, I've always enjoyed adapting other people's work. Like we, Mike and I do plenty of original material as well. But if you could find something amazing that gives you a runway to something, but even more than that, what I love about adaptations is that it goes outside of your typical imagination. By that, it it should be an idea you would have otherwise never come up with yourself. Mm. And I think that's pretty freaking cool that we have the opportunity to write screenplays about something that we never could have imagined ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what that's why we don't go after something that's like, oh, this is a good kernel here, but it's poorly written. Like we will not touch it. Yeah, even if it's sent to us or we find it ourselves, we won't touch it. We've got to be in love with the underlying material um, if we're going to adapt it ourselves, just in love with it. Um, in terms of the producer mindset, yeah, for, for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe it's just growing up with a dad who has a business background, but that's always been kind of a part of of my life. I think when I was younger, I was probably better at that aspect than I was at the actual writing aspect. But I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, there was this Gersh agent. I don't know if you know him, Tasha. His name's Frank Wolliger. I've never actually met him in person, but he spoke at one of my classes um, in film school. And he said, until you have great representation, you have to be your own best agent. And I really took that to heart. Even going to knock at the cabin, the year that was on the blacklist was the year that all the WGA writers had to fire our agents. So that got on the blacklist without having agents, which meant that I was doing a lot of the hustling that agents and managers typically would do. Wow. And when it comes back to like building up relationships, that pays dividends over the years if it's part of a priority in your life. Mm. I have some follow-up questions on the example you gave of writing to someone to get the passion letter and all of that. Like when, again, based on my own fears, a thing, a thing that also comes, comes to mind for me is if I, if I send that passion letter to the author, A, I, I need to be ready for when they call back and say, okay, sure, what, what's the movie you want to do? You said you want to make this into a movie. Give me the pitch. And I'm like, well, fuck, I don't have the pitch. I just know that there's something here that could be a great movie. So there's that piece. And the second piece is that it starts this ticking clock of, well, now I only have six months maybe to sell this thing. And am I really ready now? I'm so busy. Maybe I should just wait until it's time and where I can really put a lot of effort into it. So I guess, can you speak to those two parts of it? 
Yes. So I'm going to take the first part. Um, what if they call you and say, what's the movie? Oddly enough, I've never been asked that question. Huh. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean you won't. Right. I mean, like, like I, it might be, it might be you, Tasha. I don't know who gets asked that. God damn it. Steve told me I wouldn't be asked this question. What, yeah, right. Um, because if I had, I didn't have an answer mm-hmm. at the time. Um, I think what's more important is the feeling and the passion you have for the material. I think a lot of authors want to be able to trust that Tasha or whomever is loves this enough that they're going to figure it out. You know, um, with knock at the cabin, we had to know because we didn't have the rights and we were pitching on it. So yes, when you're going up for a pitch, you've got to have a take, but if it's something you're finding yourself, I think you just have a general idea a very, and by the way, I'll, I'll give you an example. The, script that changed our lives and allowed us to quit the day jobs and do this full time was a script called Harry's All Night Hamburgers that we sold to Warner Brothers. And that was based on a short story that we found written by Lawrence Watt Evans. And it's this beautiful, wonderful short story that is really just in the feature script part of the first act. And where the short story ends is where the short story starts to build to is kind of where the movie jumps off from the only it's a movie about parallel universes and this high school kid going on this adventure around the multiverse to search. And the only thing it's the only thing we thank you. The only thing we knew at the beginning is that he was going to leave his universe because he wasn't happy. And by the end of the movie, he's going to decide to come back. Mm -hmm. That's all we knew. That was our entire take. (laughs) We, we, do, we didn't know who the character was or what themes we were going to explore, or what the tone is, or even what the actual story was. We just knew he was going to leave and come back. Mm-hmm. So I guess if asked, we could have said that. I don't know if it would have sounded all that good at the time. And with Saturday Night Ghost Club, like we had, I'm talking like the bare bones idea at the beginning. And I'm not trying to sound cavalier. I'm more saying that it is a better risk to just leap in without looking one, the rights might not be available. Two, the author might want an absurd amount of money for him. This might be a wall that you're not even anticipating. I would just sprint forward, find out if there's a wall. If there's not, just go with passion, go from the heart, and hopefully they let you run with it. And it's and if the author says, what's the movie? Say, you know, I, I'm thinking about some different possibilities I'm still noodling on. And if they want to know a take before they give you the rights, just say like, give me a week or give me two Mm. weeks or whatever you need. And I love to set up a follow-up conversation to go over it, but don't wade into that if you don't have to. And in my experience as the author just wants someone to believe in, not they're not the head of a film company that's choosing. Also keep in mind, chances are you're the only one reaching out to them at that present moment. They're not considering between you and 10 other writers. Mm. Yeah. You know, so it's someone passionately raises their hand they have a shot at getting it. Um, the other thing is the worst thing they could say is no. And that's totally within the rights. Oh to my them. God. Anxiety. Oh, come on. We're, we're in a business. We're in a business of, re- we're in a business of rejection. We get said no to all. I mean, but like beyond that, um, the six months thing you brought up, I, I think you bring up a very valid point of not going. You've got to also be prepared for them to say yes. And the last thing you want is for them to say yes. And for you to say, Oh wait, just kidding. I'm too busy. Right. You you definitely don't want that to happen because then you'll just write that that would be awful. In that first email conversation, if they are open to an adaptation, they introduce you to your to their reps or you set up a phone call. 
you want to go, in my opinion, for what's called a shopping agreement, which is different than an option. And we could get into the, 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 the differences, um, you know, in, in a little bit. But you want to give yourself enough time, not just to write it, but to set it up. And oh, actually, the first thing you have to decide if, is if you want to write it or if you want to pitch it. And then you also want to build in enough time in your head for how long will it take to bring it to the market. So I think six months would be fair if you're going to pitch it. But if you're going to write the thing, I don't think that's nearly enough time because I think you'd want like at minimum 12, but ideally like 18 months to give yourself enough time to figure out the take, adapt the script, revise the script, you know, and then take it to market knowing that that's going to take likely several months before if and when it finds a home. Mm -hmm. So you want to ask for as much time as you can, but but also to, it's totally fine. And this is a good problem to have if, if, if you are too busy and can't take on something right now, like great, like think, you know, then wait six months or a year or whatever it is until, you know, the, the story is still there. And if the rights are available, you know, go after it then. Let's get into then shopping agreement and options, because what do you want to be prepared to ask? And I know we all want to sound um, very professional when we reach out to these people. So what should we be asking for? Sure. So chances are, if you do have reps, by the time this comes up, it'll be a conversation between them. Um, but if you're doing it yourself, um, I, the difference between, as far as I, there are other people who could explain this better than I can. So I might butcher some of this, but the, from what I understand, the difference between a shopping agreement and an option is in an option, you pre-negotiate everything. So you actually say, if this gets made, you will get paid this, both as the screenwriter and as the, uh, author, right. Or rights holder. And there's a whole other things you negotiate to back end bonuses, all this stuff. It gets, it's a much longer and more complicated document that I would not feel comfortable doing myself. I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that without an attorney and or an agent uh, supervising. A shopping agreement, on the other hand, which is what I've only used in these situations, is tends to be a pretty short document, usually like three to five pages, I would say. And what it basically says is you have the right to adapt and shop this project being a shopping agreement, you, you are shopping something. And by that, I mean, you are bringing it to potential buyers, you know, financiers, studios, networks, if it's television, and you have a set amount of time to do that exclusively. But what the deal is saying is that you and the, let's use author in this case, are linked as in you can't make a deal with a buyer unless both of you are agreeing in good faith to negotiate separate deals. The authors, if you adapt this book and write this script and Sony wants to buy it, the author has to make a deal to option his material or her material to Sony. And you have to make your own deal to sell the script or write the script to Sony. And it only works, the shopping agreement, only it will only work if both of you in good faith negotiate separate deals and are happy with them. Mm -hmm. As in, you can't sell the script if the author didn't make a deal and the author can't sell their IP if you didn't make a deal. You are you are joined at the hip for a limited amount of time. And what I like about that is they're, they're simple. It's more of a, you're kind of just linking arms for a period of time and then they, they'll have their own reps and they can negotiate their own deal with whomever, if someone wants to buy it. Uh, and when that time comes and you'll do the same. And, and these deals are separate. Like I, I have no idea 
what the authors of the material get paid that that I've set up, and they don't know what I've gotten paid. Like, so these are not they're being negotiated by separate agents. And in terms of like the deal is not closed, so to speak, until both of these two individual deals are done. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Then in that situation. Does the author get story by credit in this next process? Are they, are you splitting your fee in any way with them? I mean, you, you said they're completely two separate deals, but what does that look like when it comes to credits and actually like writing of the script? So there wouldn't be any story by fee, story by credit, unless they were actually working with you to develop the adaptation. But if you're, you are doing it yourself, they would get, uh, based on a novel, based on a short story, et cetera, credit on it. J- just the same, you know, like um, knock at the cabin, you know, in the end credits, uh, we'll say based on the novel, The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay, because he wrote the underlying uh, material and in, in anything else that, you know, that's what I'll say. Um, but there won't be a there won't be a story by credit unless they're working with you. Mm-hmm. In terms of splitting fees, no, it's it's just because it's it's separate jobs at this point. Like they will get a fee for the underlying material, and you'll get a fee for writing or selling the actual script. So it it won't financially inhibit either of you. I mean, ideally, in success, you both benefit um, individually. Wow, I really don't sound like a writer here as I speak about all this. No. I realize, but it's but great, there's though. a it's the perfect POV. <laughs> but I but I just think like look if. If I could do this, I really think other screenwriters and, and directors can be empowered to to do it themselves. The a lot of the real blocks are either internal, uh, like within ourselves, or going after IP that is just unrealistic. Like you're not going to get the rights to Legend of Zelda. You're just not. You know. Why are so. you breaking my heart like that? Yeah. <laughs> um, but Tasha, the, 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 yeah, I know, right? So my my heart's all of our hearts are broken. But the other thing, Tasha, that that is worth saying in terms of like working with the author, I found that there is different levels of how much the author wants to be involved in the process. Some of them will step out completely, just like, yeah, good luck to you, keep me updated, and others will be um, much more involved, you know, or want to be much more involved. But I do think it's important, and this has never, this has only come up for me once uh, years ago. You want to have full creative control over the screenplay you're writing, especially if you're adapting it uh, on spec for free. That needs to be your script. There can't, I would not have anyone, I would not encourage anyone to get into a situation where even the author of the book has say over your screenplay, because again, you're, you're doing it for free. Right. So it's like, this is your, they will always have their book and you will have your screenplay and the experience off, like all the authors I've worked with have kind of intuitively understood that and been extremely supportive and wonderful to work with both the ones who have been more collaborative and the ones that have been more distant. But I was in one situation years ago in a life rights situation where the person whose life rights we had had final say over the script. And it was an awful experience because of course they didn't want anything in it that made them look bad. Wow. So that you want to avoid. Um, just make sure you have control over the script you're writing. I sort of want to dovetail into sort of my, my final questions, if that's okay, Joshua. Oh, it's, it's, it's definitely okay. <laughs> in the IP family, you and your writing partner also generate your own IP by writing books and short stories and 
So the last kind of thing I want to talk about is, A, do you recommend this route? Like, what are the pros and cons of doing this? Because I always get from my reps, I think just because of the kind of content I write tends to be really expensive to make. They're always like, why don't you write a book or write a comic book or something so that we can have IP to sell and base it on that. So it's not just an original script, which feels more scary to people. So what are the pros and cons of generating your own IP? Yeah, that's something we've done just in the last couple of years. And again, it's like, it's completely doable if that's something that you would, that someone would enjoy doing it, doing. So like Michael wrote this original novella called the time runner really just on the side on a whim. It was something that, that neither he nor I initially thought felt like a movie, but it was a story he liked and just wrote it, wrote it on the side and with the hopes that it would get published somewhere. And lo and behold, it, it and this sounds ridiculous, but it ended up selling to Paramount with the Maze Runner director <laughs> wow. on it. So it's like you wow. kind of never you kind of never know. But what's cool about and we are currently working on we just finished our own book and we're working on uh, a new short story. And yeah, I mean, your your reps advice, I think, is sound there. But the other thing I like about creating your own IP is not just thinking of it as a film or TV show, but Regardless of where we're from, our friends back home don't read unproduced screenplays, even if they're on the top of the blacklist, right? They just, that's not a, that is not a commodity for the greater public, but they will read books and short stories and comics. And what I like is that if it never becomes a movie or a TV show, someone could still enjoy the short story or the book. And I think that's pretty cool because I think at the end of the day, we're all doing this to have an effect on an audience and creating your IP is a way to do that. Where, where we started doing it um, more regularly is we were getting sent quite a few short stories and books from production companies. And to be totally honest, a lot of them just weren't very good. And, and we're kind of like, well, why are we, why don't we just write our own and, and try to set them up from there? And like, it's not our main, the main part of our job. It's like, all of this is kind of supplemental. Um, but there's no, if there's something, the, that you like that you would like to rather try it out as a short story or a book, I say, go for it. The other fun thing about that is especially with short stories, you could think of it as like the written form of a proof of concept where mm -hmm. it allows you to like test out maybe a new spec idea and a less because specs or scripts are daunting for the writers too, you know? So you could test it out in a much more, sh in a much shorter and more attainable format. I love that. And, and the other thing just to add is like, you know, I look for IP maybe like a couple hours out of the month. This is not like a full time. This cannot become your like it's a producer or an executive's job to be looking for IP all the time. But where I find writers and directors can do could accomplish as much with far little time expense is that we are looking for only what appeals to us directly. So you don't need to spend nearly as much time because you're not looking at everything a company would make. You're only looking at what would excite you. So, I mean, even if it's just allotting a, a couple hours a month, and I really mean a couple hours a month to just go on some like internet rabbit holes and see where they take you. And then you'll land a couple books to read over the, the weeks and months after that and, and see what happens. And again, if you're a quarter of the way in and it's not doing it for you, move on to the next one mm -hmm. until you find hopefully this, but this should be all supplemental to your original writing material. 
It's so well said. This is inspiring to me already. <laughs> it is. I, I, I understand why Tasha left us for you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I get it. Wow, we've reached a catharsis. <laughs> no, Every no, no, episode's this... therapy here. Yeah. yeah. This was amazing. I, uh, you answered everything. I mean, this was like very informative. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. Um, so, I mean, finally, you have this movie coming out directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Can you tell us um, what the logline is and when and where we can go see it? Absolutely. So Knock at the Cabin is about this family that's vacationing in this remote little cabin and these four invaders show up and break into the house and they don't hurt the family, but they like subdue them and they tell them that they're here to stop the apocalypse. And the only way to stop the apocalypse is for the family to choose to sacrifice one of their own. Oh, and shit. if they don't do that, yeah, right. It's a, it's a happy little Christmas movie. <laughs> nothing to do with Christmas. Um, but what I love about it, and I think what I would like to, what partially drew Shyamalan to it is it's this really big idea, but the vast majority of it takes place in the cabin, mm. which is really cool. Mm. And, um, you know, again, the fact that I, I never, ever, ever expected when writing the script that M. Night Shyamalan was going to direct it and this was going to be a theatrical release, but you could see Knock at the Cabin. Um, it's exclusively in theaters, which is really, really cool in this day and age, but it comes out February 3rd. So it's coming up. Can't wait. We're definitely going to yeah. see it. Big act two yeah. party. Yeah, it's very exciting. Congratulations. Congratulations. I, I, I love Thank M. Night. You. I feel bad I got the name wrong the first time around. I just, I'm sorry. I love M. Night. He's... It's all good. It's all good. I mean, they are technically knocking at the cabin door. Yeah. We're just so your shortening. Title actually... Knock on the cabin window. Your, 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 your title is logically correct. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. But yeah, again, and also you just, you just never know. Like, you never know when you're right, what you're right, when, when you're working on something, what, it could be, again, we thought this was going to be an indie horror movie. So yeah. you just never know. What a crazy wow. journey. Maybe sometime we'll have you back to talk about that journey. Maybe. Maybe. Happy to do it. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap up with the quote of the day by my new favorite quote of the day person, George Saunders. When we talk about fiction, we tend to use terms like theme, plot, character development, and structure. I've never, as a writer, found these very useful. These terms are placeholders. And if they intimidate us and block us up, as they tend to, we might want to put them aside and try to find a more useful way to think about whatever it is they're placeholders for. George Saunders. Please remember <laughs> to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter, Josh Hallman on Instagram, and Steve Desmond. Where can we find you, if anywhere? Well, that's tough. I'm I've I kind of abstain from social okay. media, so I am I am untraceable. But you could you could look at Michael and I have a have a website, uh, dreamingants.com, where you can find more info on our projects and reach out reach out to us directly if you would like. Amazing. The end. Thank you. Thank you so well, much, folks. What, I, there, we, we forgot one ending part, but as always, Act Two Podcast <laughs> is is uh, produced by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Bag, which you can find on Spotify. Thank you for, for backing me up, Joshua. Mm -hmm.